0: Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, very, very pleased to be joined by Stephen Coslin today. Stephen is the president and CEO of the Foundry College, which we'll talk about a bit more as we engage in the conversation. He's also got a tremendous career arc that I can't really do justice to in my introduction. So instead, I'm just gonna introduce him. So Stephen, welcome to Trending in Education.
1: Thank you, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: So maybe just to get started, you know, we only have say 30, 40 minutes. That that alone could probably be filled by you talking through uh, the many different roles and hats you've worn uh, throughout your career. Can you give us a a somewhat condensed version of uh, your career history?
1: So the majority of my career is on the faculty at Harvard University. Uh, first as a junior faculty, then a senior faculty member. I became chair of the department. I was uh, also dean of social sciences there. I also was co-director of the Mind of the Market Lab at Harvard Business School for three years.
2: Hmm.
1: And then I was in the Department of Neurology at Mass General Hospital doing brain scanning things and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I left Harvard 2011, went to Stanford, where I'd been a graduate student, and ran the Center for Advanced Study of Behavioral Sciences for a couple years. And got sort of sucked into the startup world by Ben Nelson, who <laughs> just gotten $25 million based on a PowerPoint presentation from Benchmark Capital mm-hmm. uh, to start a new university from scratch. So he he didn't have any real graduate education or any experience in higher ed. So he hired me as an consultant initially. And I helped put together the curriculum and structure the academics for that. Mm-hmm. I, I got sucked into it to the point where I, I left Stanford and joined Minerva as their first founding dean, I was really the first faculty member. In those days, faculty meetings were really easy. (laughs) Left hemisphere and right hemisphere would get together and scheduling was not a problem. There's very little attention. (laughs) Uh, Very efficient meetings. Yeah. Well, I used to joke about that, but as it grew and it's gotten quite large now, Minerva is very successful. Yes. It's wonderful. It developed into something that was much more familiar from my previous experience. So I ended up leaving Minerva after five and a half years to do sort of the un-Minerva in many ways. That is, an, Minerva is an elite institution. Takes When I left, it was 1.7% of the applications. It's a flipped classroom, seminar-based. It's designed as a liberal arts institution, training leaders and innovators. So Foundry is doing none of those things. Right. Right. It's not elite. It's for working adults. Uh, our goal is not a liberal arts education. It's to help people uh, grow in their current job or get a better job. We're very mm-hmm. job oriented mm-hmm. and in fact we're focused on jobs that will not be easily automated Right. in the future. That's, that's what's powering us in large part mm-hmm. and we don't use a flipped classroom. We, in fact, w- flip classroom, you, you happen to do all the information transmission, the reading and watching videos and all that before class. Right. And then in class, you have you know discussion or whatever. So we have nothing before class. There's no requirements at all, no reading. There's nothing after class, it's all contained. Mm. And what we do is we simply tell them what they need to know and then we immediately put them in active learning. Mm-hmm. and debate or problem solve or role play, something that'll get them using the information, right. which is the only way they're actually gonna remember it and see how to apply it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very different approach. And Minerva, a very different set of goals. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think Minerva is is really the best in class for what it does, but it's something different.
0: Yeah, I guess one commonality between Minerva and the Foundry College is that there's a synchronous component. So one of the the things that spurred this conversation between us is you recently uh, wrote an article about the qualitative differences between synchronous and asynchronous learning and how frequently people uh, immediately assume, if it is online, that it is asynchronous. I'd love to get some of your thoughts on the distinctions there. And it does sound like, you know, even the Minerva might have been a little more of a blending. When you flip a classroom, there's asynchronous that then leads into synchronous. I'd love to get any of your thoughts on... Those those distinctions and and as someone who spent many years myself focused on the the power of synchronous online, I'd love to get more of your perspective on this.
1: Sure. So I I'm driven by the science of learning. I'm really interested in in how the, the brain acquires new information and organizes it and digs it out and uses it in various mm-hmm. ways. And looked at that literature. i co-authored textbooks, so I've had. The opportunity to read a lot of literature and and, uh, organized it into a set of principles. And I want to use those principles in teaching. And it turns out it's very hard to do that asynchronously, in part because, uh, take for example, the principle of deliberate practice. So, deliberate practice is something you want to do. Say, I'm learning French, say, and I'll I'll say a word, mouille, which is an approximation for wet. And I have a French tutor sitting right there who says, no, you want to say Mouillet, okay? And, although better than that. And what I try to do is I try to listen to the difference between what I produced and what she produced, and then I try to minimize that difference the next time I say it. Mm-hmm. So that's deliberate practice, where it's not just saying it over and over again. It's taking feedback mm-hmm. to try to tune up what you did right well you need a tight feedback loop to do that well and asynchronous is not the way to, to do it mm-hmm. or synchronous does give you that opportunity but that's not the only principle there's 16 of them that i formulated i could go through each one but that would bore you and your listeners to death
0: yeah but we could maybe hit hit them uh in a circuitous path over, over the course of the conversation maybe not all 16 but but i would love to hear more of of your thinking on this but then also the the pivot from minerva which was uh Highly selective, elitist college founded online first and foremost. There's some commonality there in that Foundry was also founded to be an online college. And both share at least a partial focus in the case of Foundry, maybe more of a a central focus on the, the synchronous learning part. But what specifically is the mission of the Foundry College and what drew you to found it? and to establish this new institution.
1: So I was really inspired by Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. The the title kind of really lays out the central idea Mm -hmm. where it talks about these two cognitive systems. One that's evolutionarily older, he calls system one, that is very fast, unconscious, things go on in parallel, it's automatic. Okay, the evolutionary more recent system, system two, is slower serial it is conscious it's not automatic it's rule-based and so forth Mm -hmm. so a lot of what we do in daily life is is driven by system one that is as you navigate around your environment not bump into things you're not consciously reasoning out you know where to put my foot it's just being driven right along by this system which is happening very fast automatically so I, i noticed two things that were interesting to me one was most of what's tested by IQ tests is actually in the province of system two. That kind of reasoning, analogizing, and you go through the 11 or so subscales. Uh, there's, there's one that's not, but th- that's a, a pattern matching. Even some of that is depending on how you do it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, hmm, what if you could pack a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, even some wisdom into system one? Mm. You could do an end round around IQ. That's kind of interesting. And then I realized, well, it's really not one or the other. In fact, the two are interacting constantly. So the issue is really how to put system one in the driver's seat. So it's driving system two. So a lot of that IQ based decision-making stuff wouldn't come to the fore. So that's what we've done at Foundry is I I got this idea that uh, a lot of what you need for practical knowledge, knowledge will help you get a better job, help you progress in your job can be thought of in terms of two types of learning outcomes, which I call hacks and heuristics. Mm. So let me explain what I mean by that. So a hack is an inelegant solution, but it is a solution to a problem. So for example, did you ever learn five paragraph form like in high school?
0: Yes. Do you remember it Mm, There's an introduction? Then there's three, different examples and a conclusion, something like that, right? Yeah,
1: very good. So the idea is you've got this template. It's got, as you said, an introduction where you have to introduce three things. So my summer vacation, right? Uh, you know, I, I went to Siberia and I saw the effects of uh, global warming, humongous mosquitoes, and uh, interesting uses of technology. I don't know, I just made those up. And so you introduce that, and then you have a paragraph on each of them, one at a time. You know, effects of global warming, and mosquitoes, technology, whatever. And then at the end, you pull them together. You say, you know, technology has been useful for counteracting the effects of global warming, which has increased the mosquito population. But the point is, it's a hack. It is a template that if you have to write something, or, or you have to give a talk, it's not just writing. It's always gonna work, you can always use this. It's not elegant, but it's gonna work. So, notice that I can put that into system one, where whenever the appropriate condition comes up, where you have to write something, you, you know, if we practice it enough, it'll automatically, unconsciously trigger that hack. Oh, I remember by paragraph form. But you need system two to sort of fill in the slots. You, gotta, you know, I was using it trying to remember what, what I knew about Siberia, which is extremely little. But But the point is, it's mostly gonna be driven by system one whereas a heuristic is not a solution it's a process that usually will lead to a, a solution mm-hmm. which is much more driven um, by system two process you got to sort of take feedback listen so forth but you can trigger it by system one and keep it on track mm-hmm. with system two so the challenge for me was if we're going to be working with the average student population it struck me that who who are interested in in getting a better life, you're not necessarily interested in Shakespeare and calculus and, you know, liberal arts. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be cool to take a curriculum, a useful curriculum and build pedagogy teaching methods that would be as much oriented around hacks and heuristics as possible. So the the target student population for Foundry College are, uh, average people, uh, not elite, not like Minerva. And the idea is that these people have busy lives and we need to come to them, which is one of the reasons that we've set it up to be contained classrooms. So there's no homework, none of that sort of thing. But also what they're largely interested in is either getting a better job or progressing in the job they've already got. And what would be really cool is to give them the intellectual tools, So they could do that with minimal effort. And the thing about system one is it's automatic. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't require much effort. So the more of the curriculum that we could formulate into this hacks and heuristics approach, the more that we could actually teach people in a way that they they could really use. Mm -hmm.
0: And are those hacks and heuristics relevant to the general population? Like even if you are... In an elite university like i, I am curious uh, you've piqued my interest you know some examples of the the hacks and heuristics that are are relevant and in particular uh, my understanding is that the idea is to be relevant for the f- the future of work understanding that automation the, the fourth industrial revolution is is nigh upon us and trying to get out ahead of that particularly for the population you're targeting that's where you're trying to you know, educate them in some of the hacks and heuristics, the the sort of tools of thought that will make them job relevant and out ahead of things for, say, the next five, 10
1: years. Right. So I did this little exercise where I went through about a dozen professions, and I tried to think about what aspects of those jobs were likely to be automated in the foreseeable future and which ones weren't. They ranged from barista and bartender, which came out differently, by the way, up to doctor and lawyer. And it, it turned out that we humans are really good at two things. It would be very hard to automate. One, are everything revolving around emotion. And that is, we're good at using emotion unconsciously to prioritize what's important. We're good at reading other people's emotions to help us communicate and interact with them on teams and work together and so forth. The other thing that we're really good at is taking into account the effects of context. So context, I think, is really interesting because it's always changing. So every time there's a major event, context changes. And it changes in ways that are really difficult to predict. So machine learning, which is based on lots of data from previous events, kind of hard to use when you can get huge shifts like we're seeing now with the COVID-19 situation. Very hard to predict these qualitative shifts based on what Happened before. So, our curriculum was designed to teach students specifically the kinds of skills and knowledge that were not going to be easily automated. So, for example, we have a general education program that has six courses in it. The courses are things like uh, critical analyses, uh, problem solving, creative problem solving, communicating effectively with other people, learning how to learn, by the way, the world's always changing, that's an important thing, working with other people. And uh, managing yourself, how to be organized and be effective, proactive and responsible, and so forth. So we have courses where we foreground all this. That's what we're teaching. Now we're not teaching philosophy and hoping they'll learn critical thinking as a byproduct. So notice that I said critical analyses, plural. So critical thinking is not one thing. It's a collection of things that are really quite distinct. So in our course we focus on four, but there there are more. But these are the ones that seem most job relevant to me anyway. Um, which are things like deciding whether to believe a claim, so fake news detection as it were. Yep, will. yep. Evaluating an argument and making a good argument. Uh, making a decision where you have to consider trade-offs between gains and losses, and keep in mind that we're loss averse, so we're going to weight that too high. Yep. And, so each of those topics breaks down into a set of these hacks and heuristics. So take, for example, that first one, fake news detection. So I think the hacks and heuristics by analogy to an hourglass where at the top you've got the conditions where it's relevant. So when is this particular hack or heuristic going to be applicable? And then the bottom is, is how you actually apply it. And at the middle, the choke point is, is the bit of knowledge that you're dragging up. So one of the heuristics we have is if someone is motivated to fool you okay which in turn can be decomposed so you have to learn what that condition really means Mm -hmm. then uh, question their motivation you know look look into what what they're up to Mm -hmm. it's very simple you need a lot of practice at it but it can become automatic and you can start using it very effectively
0: I would like to understand how you make this real because because you as I understand, part of the power of synchronous is that it's it's active learning. It's actually engaging the the learner in in a real practice where they are getting real time feedback, where they are in a social context. All those things seem really powerful to me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you can take some of the more abstract concepts around, if then, causal relationships and machine learning. And then translate into something that an adult learner in the population that you're targeting can come out of this live session with real actionable outputs that that they have learned that they can then apply in their lives.
1: Right. Okay. Let me give you another example. So one of our courses is called Working With Others. And it's about working on teams and negotiation and so forth. So as part of the negotiation piece, we teach them something called a BATNA which is a best alternative to negotiated agreement. It's mm-hmm. a idea that uh, Fisher and Uri developed in a book called Getting the Yes. So the way it works is we have these little just-in-time lectures where we give them something useful. And so we teach them what a badness is and what characteristics of good badness are. All right, we know, we just have them listen to a lecture, they're gonna forget 90% of what they hear within a couple of weeks. Right. So we put them in active learning immediately And why do we do that? Because we know that the more deeply you process something, the more likely you are to understand and remember it. So let me me ask you a question, if I may. Sure. Mike, do you ever, at the end of the day, reflect back on what you did during the day, remembering the events of the day?
0: I have done that. I've, I, may be, I may not be 100% compliant lately, I'll, I'll confess, but I have done
1: that. It doesn't matter. Here's the question behind the question, question I'm really interested in. Of what you remember at the end of the day, what percentage do you think at the time the event took place during the day, at that time, you intentionally tried to memorize it so you'd be able to recall it at the end of the day? What percentage? Mm,
0: 10, 20%.
1: Yeah, so I've done this with large groups where I ask people to raise their hand if it's 50% or more, no one ever does. And then I say, okay, how about 25% or more? Once in a while someone does, once in a while. And then I start chopping it down by fives. And the modal number consistently is 5%, Mm -hmm. consistently.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So think about this. Only about 5% of what you remember at the end of the day, you actually tried to learn. Mm Now from a learning science perspective, this is not surprising at all. Why? Because most of our memory is what's called incidental. Mm. There's a distinction between incidental memory, which is a byproduct of just paying attention and thinking about it, and intentional memory where you try to use associations and things to organize material to memorize them, both of which are useful. But the point is, if I can get you to think something through and pay close attention to it, whether you want to or not, you're probably gonna remember it. Mm -hmm. So what we've done at Foundry is once they're out of the lecture, we put them into breakout groups where we design activities where the incentives and consequences are designed so they're gonna pay attention and process it deeply. Mm -hmm. So let me give you the example. So they hear about the BATNA, best alternative negotiated agreement. And then they go into a role-playing simulation for uh, the act of learning. So the simulation is there are four constituents, four roles, and what they're going to do is a water rights negotiation. So you've got farmers who want water for their crops. You've got homeowners who want water, take showers, wash dishes, water their lawns, whatever. You've got environmentalists would like to try to minimize the amount of water and you got engineers who have to figure out how to get the water to the people who want it the right amount of water. Mm-hmm. So those are the four roles that uh, you could have, there are lots of other ways to do it, but here's the idea. You have phase one breakout groups, small groups where there would be four people in this case in each There are four roles. There's a reason we're gonna have four people, but each group initially is just one of the roles. So you have a group where everybody's going to represent the farmers. Okay, and they're going to try to figure out the best strategy for negotiating. They know, they know what the other three groups are, the other three rules, constituents, stakeholders. And they're going to come up with a BATNA because that's the learning outcome. We want them to learn the characteristics of good BATNA. So they're going to be a separate group for the farmers to figure this out, a separate group for the engineers, for and so forth. Okay, so they do this for about 10 minutes. They come up with a BATNA. And they know that the next phase is gonna be, they're gonna be broken up, it's called a jigsaw, Elliot Aronson's idea. But we now form new groups where there's one person from each of the previous. So each new group has one representative of the farmers, one representative of the engineers, one of the homeowners and so forth. Okay, Lots of groups, one from each of the previous. So in that first group, they know they're gonna be standing alone representing their constituency, so they better pay attention are they're going to be embarrassed and they're not going to be able to follow through. And then in that second group, their job is to try to infer what the BATNA is sure. of the other three. And they know that they're going to go to get another group, but they go back to the original and have to report back what they inferred. And that's important because finally at the end, they go back to the class as a whole and they're going to be called on randomly to try to say, well, what did you come up with? What do you think the BATNA was? Right. And what do you think? Was it a good, bad, or not? Mm-hmm. And So they so at every stage, we have incentives based on the consequences. That is, the incentives are to really pay attention because if I don't, what comes next I'm going to fail at. Right. Consequences. So the point is, we've set it up with the principle of what's called depth of processing. The more deeply you process, the more likely I remember it, in mind from the beginning. So they're going to get what this BATNA is Mm -hmm. so again think of the BATNA that's a hack okay it's like when you're in a negotiating situation make sure you put together a BATNA okay and then there'll be well what is a BATNA if I have to do a BATNA this will be another one Mm -hmm. um it's got to have the following characteristics
0: yeah and what I like about that example is that it's it's social and emotional and I guess that adds to the depth of the processing so like you know the, there's natural incentives that we all have as social humans to make sure we're not embarrassed, to make sure we represent well to our team. It's another aspect of, of synchronous that can, can be really powerful, like th- this breakout concept. It's another example of where done right, and I saw this in your article, done right, uh, synchronous can open up opportunities that would be very difficult to do in a physical face-to-face, synchronous online. allows for that jigsaw scenario to be executed against. You could do it in a physical classroom, but it would require a lot of traffic copying and moving of furniture. And depending on the room you're in, it would be challenging. Online, you can design the technology to make it feel much more seamless. And my understanding is, you know, actually both at Minerva and now at, at Foundry, you've been building the technology that supports this type of curriculum. Can yeah. you talk, talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, so Minerva started off, as, as I mentioned earlier, a flipped classroom with seminars, whereas we started from the beginning with the idea that there'll be a lecture component because we don't have them reading and anything else that so would tell them what they need to know. But we need them to do active learning. So they, that's much better with small groups. So we've developed something different. The platform we've developed is really based on using data about student performance to help improve learning. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways we do that is uh, de- determining who goes in what breakout group. So take the BATNA example. We would have a poll right after the lecture and see how well they understood it. And then we'd use those data to make sure at least one person in each breakout group really understood what a BATNA was. Because mm-hmm. otherwise it would be the blind leading the blind. And the reason that's important is not the condition part, not the top of the funnel everyone's going to realize, well, when you have to negotiate, do this. Okay. It's the bottom part where you have to apply it. That's where the system two stuff comes in where you've got to take into account context. So you need somebody who really understands it well, to be able to do that in formulating your own BATNA and trying to In contrast, there are a lot of cases where the application is pretty straightforward. If someone has a motivation to fool you, you should check their credibility. Right. Uh, but That's it. Do they have a motivation? Think about it. Uh, if so, let's just check. There's, there's not any real complexity to the application there. A lot of them are like that. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that we can put them in breakout groups at homogenous levels. So they're comparable levels. And as long as we design the activities, so there's something there for everyone. So you can go more or less deeply. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to exercise. So here's an analogy. People always say, Uh, When you're playing tennis, you should play with someone better than you because you'll learn more. Well, that's great But how about for them, right? Um, So I had the experience of where we used always heterogeneous breakout groups and the people who were really good at whatever it was didn't like it they they didn't sign up to be Tutors and they weren't trained to do it and the people who were getting the tutoring didn't like it particularly either because these were their peers so instead I think the better analogy from tennis is is the amount of exercise. Where two amateurs can get just as much active, uh, exercise playing against each other as two experts, two champions. And exercise is the analogy to processing, mental processing. Mm-hmm. So the, the more deeply you process, the more likely you are to understand it and for it to stick. Mm-hmm. So that's what we've done. We've used performance data from previous relevant courses to place people at comparable levels so that no one's gonna feel frustrated because everybody else is over their head, you know, better at, at what they're doing, or bored. Uh, but rather, you've got people who are pretty much the same level, so you can really work together.
0: Yeah, I, l- I love the, the thinking, and it does remind me of just the, the human need that I think is really profound now in light of this pandemic for uh, social connection, just in response to the isolation and anxiety that we're all experiencing and to, to find ways to connect people so that they're connected with folks who are actually gonna benefit them the most in this learning exchange, I think is really powerful. We are getting close to time. So I did want to make sure, and thanks so much for, for all, your, all your perspective on this. We could obviously go, go much longer, but I'd love to understand better where you think this all intersects with the future of work and automation. And uh, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but, but I'm, I'm sort of curious, you know, with a little more detail, what sorts of skills, what sorts of ideas educators should have so that we're able to design interventions that get humans better equipped to handle the, this radical transformation that we're expecting in the future.
1: So Joseph Aoun, the president of Northeastern University, has written a book called Robot Proof, mm. uh, where he talks about something he calls humanics. And I think it's exactly the answer to the question you're asking. So he's uh, worked it out in some detail. So I have focused primarily on working with other people, the human stuff. He's made it broader and thought about the kind of skills you'll need to interact with technology mm-hmm. to, to be digitally uh, um, literate and so forth. So I, it's pretty clear if you take a step back, uh, you can identify things that are be very difficult to automate. Things involving emotion and taking context no account is my take on it. Yep. Um, but you also can identify the kind of skills people are going to need for the foreseeable future to be able to interact with technology and use it creatively. Mm-hmm. So it, it strikes me that those two approaches are very useful in terms of thinking about what a future-looking curriculum ought to look like.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like the the term humanics. I hadn't heard that before. That's that's
1: yes, yes, Joseph. Yes.
0: That's that's pretty great. And then usually when we conclude, I like to ask uh, folks for what other trends are capturing your attention these days, maybe outside of what we've talked about so far. Uh, it's a slightly difficult question in light of the the COVID nineteen pandemic because that's sort of the only trend that that many of us can see but is there anything else uh, that you'd want our listeners to think about uh, or that are capturing your, your imagination? Yeah.
1: yeah. I, I'm struck by the fact that people need meaningful work. Mm-hmm. They don't just need work. They, they need work that they feel is worth their efforts and contributing to something larger than them. And mm-hmm. they feel that it's wor- it, it gives them meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think there should be more thought about that in terms of what, sorts of jobs we want to have created that will give people the kind of satisfaction with what they do with a lot of their time, but not most of their time every day. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's a great answer. And it does make me think back to the meaning making that humans do when we engage with each other, which is another, maybe a final argument for the power of synchronous and, and connecting with other other humans. And if folks want to learn more about the Foundry College, where should they go? What should they look for?
1: Look for our website, www.foundrycollege.org.
0: Stephen Coslin, thank you so much for your time on today's show. We got a lot, and I think there's plenty more that we'd love to get downstream. So, So maybe we could get you back again in the future. But thanks again for taking the time.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'd be more than happy to talk further. Thank you very much.